Hello and welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. There is in fact no more wickeder problem than war and conflict. From the start of civilization, human beings, societies, cultures have gone to war against each other and sometimes amongst themselves. War is complicated and the reasons why they start and how and if they end differ but there are a number of common factors that underlie the root causes of war. Bad and corrupt leaders, group dynamics, fear and anger, regional disputes are of course just a few, few that we know of. But we do know one thing for sure, and that is no matter the cause, the impact that the war has on people is devastating. Absolutely, Senator. Uh, discussing war is kind of taking me back to my university days and even the early part of my career where I worked with humanitarian organizations trying to alleviate the consequences of war. But, you know, sadly, war and conflict continues to impact millions of people around the globe. Even a few weeks ago, we saw a violent insurrection in Washington. So it's really important to understand why wars happen, what motivates people to go to war, and what can be done about it. So for those issues, we uh, talked with a fascinating, fascinating historian, Margaret McMillan, and we delved into all of these issues. So let's get to the interview. Welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. And today, our subject is in fact, one of the most wicked problems facing society, war. It's been with us since the beginning of civilizations. It's with us today in different parts of the world, and we fight war differently. Our guest, I'm so pleased to welcome Professor Margaret McMillan as our guest. Uh, she is a Canadian luminary that we are all, who we are all so proud of. Professor McMillan is a professor of history at the University of Toronto and Emeritus Professor of International History at the University of Oxford. She specializes in British imperial history and international history of the 19th and 20th centuries. Her most recent book, War, which I'm still in the middle of, it's called War, How Conflict Shaped Us, explores the way in which war has shaped humanity's history. Thank you, Professor McMillan, for speaking to us today. It's a great pleasure always to speak to you, so. so let me let me start again by sharing with our listeners how incredibly chuffed I am. Chuffed is, is a very British word, uh, mm. and I grew up in colonial India. How very chuffed I am to have you with us, because you are such, you're a Canadian we're so proud of. Uh, and we, we just, every time you write another book and the accolades pour in, you know, our, our wings of pride grow. But you are a Canadian a Canadian who studies war. Fortunately, Canada has not fought any major wars, although we have sent our young boys and girls to war uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, but we're still largely a peaceful country. We manage our affairs uh, through peace, order and good governance largely. It's not a perfect story, but it's there. How does this national identity and your connection to it, your emotional connection, to Canada influence your perspective? 
Well, of course, I'm actually very proud to be a Canadian. I think I was very fortunate to have been born here and brought up here. And I think on the whole, it's a pretty decent country. Um, we know it has problems, but I like to think that Canadians face their problems and try and deal with them. And we talk about them and we try and do something about them. And so as a Canadian, I don't feel as I might if I were, say, German or Chinese or perhaps American, I don't feel the need to defend my country in quite the same way. And also because Canada has never been a very powerful country or indeed a belligerent country. We've never gone out to conquer others. Um, we don't have a history of great battles in our part. Well, we have battles, certainly. We don't have a history of great military conquests. And so I think being a Canadian is in a way liberating because I don't have to, I don't have access to grind in the same way that I might if, if I came from somewhere like the United States. If I were an American looking at the world, I'd be probably feeling I either have to attack what my country has done or defend what my country has done. And I don't feel quite the same pressure in Canada. I'd like to see, think being a Canadian, I can look at the international situation and international history with a certain amount of detachment. And it's not that we're not involved, but on the whole, we've never been major players. And that gives, I think, Canadians a certain freedom when it comes to studying, as it, as it does, I think, to many of the Scandinavians countries. It gives a certain freedom when it comes to considering big international questions. So thinking of Canada as a middle power, not belligerent, not uh, uh, committed to conquering others, do you think that personality puts us uh, in, a, in, a, in an important space to mediate conflicts? I mean, it would seem yes, but our history of mediating conflict is checkered. Would you comment on that? Well, mediating comments, conflicts is not easy. And yes, I think our history is checkered, but I think that's partly the nature of, of what we've been trying to do. And we haven't always done it well. I mean, that's certainly we need to learn from our mistakes. But I think Canada has generally been committed to the peaceful solution of problems. And I think we see that domestically as, as well as internationally. And I think really from the moment that we became a, an independent or semi-independent country with confederation and then grew into full autonomy, we've been committed to working multilaterally with others. We've tended to be supporters of international organizations. We were great supporters of the League of Nations. We were, we were and still are great supporters of the United Nations and all the other international organizations from the World Health Organization to the International Labor Organization which try and make the world a better place. And I think you also see that impulse, not just in official Canadian policy, but also among Canadians. And Canadians are great supporters of NGOs. I and mean, a lot of Canadians are committed to trying to make the world a better place. And I think, you know, as I say, we haven't, and I'm sure you'd agree, we haven't always done it well, but I think we keep trying. And I think we see ourselves as, you know, having some sort of obligation to play a positive role in the world. I mean, we are very fortunate people. And I think with great good fortune, I think comes also, and I, I think a lot of Canadians feel it's a responsibility to try and, and help others who are less fortunate. Now, as the Senator said that you're a celebrated historian and as a former history major myself, I've read your books, I've been influenced by your your thoughts and your arguments and, and, and different things that you've done, uh, you know, uh, being such a great historian. And, You've also obviously written a lot of books on the subject of war or, or various parts of war. You know, what, what particularly fascinates you about the subject of war and, you know, why is, it, is there anything in your own background that sort of 
has led you into that that fascination and then writing about it in so prolifically? Well, I think perhaps I've always been interested in war since the first moments that I began to get interested in history, which were probably quite early on. And I think that is partly because I grew up in the aftermath of the Second World War. And I think almost my first political memories are of the Korean War and the ending of the Korean War. I mean, when I was at public school in Toronto in the early 1950s, we were making balls of string and collecting silver foil for the Korean War effort. Don't ask me what it was meant to do, but it was something we were sort of aware of. And my father and, and three of my uncles were in the Second World War. And so we heard stories about it. Um, we used to play dress up in, in their old uniforms and both my grandfathers were in the First World War. So I think it was something that I knew about, partly because as I became conscious of the world around me, wars were happening. And of course, when I was at university, the Vietnam War, the, the long American slog in, in Vietnam was something that very much was, was very much something we talked about and, and worried about. And so I just think, you know, both in sort of personal terms, but also just because war seemed to be there so much. And it simply became part of what I was interested in as an historian. So war, I think of war and then I think of peace, you, you know, not just of the book, but war starts looking for peace somewhere. Um, and you have said in, in some of your books and lectures and, and history also tells us that peace can come from war. But from your research and your understanding of all the many wars that have been fought, can you give our listeners a few examples of where you could say this was a just war and peace arrived from that war? And, and where is it right and just to go, for, to, go to war? It's a very complicated kind of question. Yeah. It is a complicated question, and it's one that has been wrestled with in different civilizations and societies almost as long as I think as we've had war itself. Um, when is it justified? And, and well, one of the things that I think most people have, or most peoples came to agree on that you are justified in going to war if you have to defend yourselves. If you have no alternative, but to use violence, unless you are Gandhi and say that you should never use violence under any circumstances. But that is takes all that takes almost superhuman capacity to be able to do that. And most of us don't. And so most of us would fight to defend those, those things we hold dear, our families, um, our homes, our, you know, our, our homelands. And so I think there is a general understanding that war is justified when it's a matter of life and death survival. Um, then there are the sort of questions about um, what constitutes an insult. When is war justified because someone has done something so awful to you that you feel you, you are justified in trying to punish them? And that's much more complicated because who decides what the insult is or who decides what the injury is? And you get more complicated. And then, of course, there are all sorts of questions about wars, about how should they be fought? And again, I think most societies would agree, even if they don't observe it, that you should use means proportionate to the ends. And so if you want to try and stop a civil war, you don't go in and, and destroy the whole country. You don't use excessive means to try and, and achieve an end. And I think sometimes um, fighting through a war can result in peace, but too often those who start wars don't really think about how they intend to end them. Um, and they don't really think properly about what will happen if the war drags on. And what tends to happen, and this is, I think, the nature of war, is that those who start wars think they can control it. 
and wars are by their nature very difficult to control and wars will often run out of anyone's control. Um, you know, the Americans went into Vietnam and in what they felt was an attempt to help the government of South Vietnam. Um, they used to use terms like police action and they ended up being drawn into a long protracted conflict. The invasion and occupation forces went into Iraq to topple Saddam Hussein, but they never really thought, or those in charge never really thought, what do we do once he's toppled? Um, they weren't thinking of what you do, when a, how, how to end a war and what you do when a war ends. Um, wars can produce peace um, if one side is so utterly defeated that it won't fight on. And sometimes wars will produce peace when both sides say we've had enough, um, this war is pointless. But the danger is, of course, once you start a war, the passions get aroused and people have died and people want revenge, publics want revenge, and it becomes much more difficult to stop. But I think far too often those who start wars don't think about what they really want out of them. What is their definition of victory and how are they going to achieve it? And what do they mean by peace? So I want to reflect on the biggest peace treaty, which did not end in peace, the 1918 Versailles Treaty, where you've uh, written again extensively about that. You know, from my reading, my reading of history, and I want to tell you growing up uh, in India, the subject of the First and Second War was completely fascinating to girls in convents. I don't know why, but it was. So, you know, maybe there were some historians there in the making. Um, that so-called peace only led to a bigger, more deadly war, war, which was the Second World War. Have we learned anything since then in time? How to craft peace treaties? How to ensure uh, that they are sustainable? And how we treat losers? I think what we know is that the best thing you can do is treat losers with generosity rather than pushing them further down the road to bitterness and, and humiliation. What you should do is treat them with generosity. I mean, St. Augustine, who, who did think about war, said the object of war should be to make peace. But the trouble is that at the end of a war, those in charge and their publics don't often feel like being tolerant and kind and treating the defeated enemy with generosity. I mean, we know it but it's actually very hard to do. But I think what is interesting about the ending of the First World War, which left both winners and losers feeling that it hadn't really been a satisfactory conclusion and led or helped to lead, I, I don't think it led the peace at Versailles didn't lead directly to the war between Germany and the allies in 1939, but it helped to create the conditions which made that war possible. Um, you know, after all, there were 20 years between 1919 and 1939, and, and a lot happened in those 20 years. And so many other factors came together to create the Second World War. And it was a war, actually, in the end, that Hitler wanted. Um, you know, there, there's very little debate about who started the Second World War. It was a war started by Germany under the guidance of Hitler for the Nazi war aims. But what I think the Allied leaders had drawn from the conclusion at the end of the First World War is that this time, the victory has to be clear. And so in fact, in the ending of the Second World War, they were much harsher than they had been at the ending of the First World War. Germany wasn't occupied at the end of the First World War. Germany was totally occupied at the end of the Second World War and it was divided into sectors among the victorious allies. Um, its cities were devastated, its infrastructure was devastated. Um, the German, in fact, Germany ended up being divided into two for the whole duration of the Cold War. But curiously, and this is something I think we need to think about. 
the peace that came out of the Second World War, even though Germany was treated much more harshly than it was in the First World War, has endured much more. And what has also happened, I think, is a very different Germany eventually emerged. And I think that we're seeing that today. I mean, you know, Germany is so unlike the Germany of 1919 or the Germany of 1914. It's, it's changed enormously. And I think part of the reason for that was the Cold War. And because of the Cold War, the United States remained in Europe and it undertook a huge project of rebuilding through the Marshall Plan. And so West Germany was both given huge amounts of aid, which Germany was not given after the First World War. And there was real pressure on German elites and, and the German political system, both to deal with the Nazi past, to, to recognize what had happened then and, and to, to accept that they had committed ghastly crimes, but also real pressure for them to become more democratic. And so curiously enough, and I'm not sure I would advocate this in all endings of wars, but what we ended up doing collectively in the world, in the case of both Germany and Japan, turns out, I think, to have had very positive effects. I mean, both countries were initially treated very harshly. Both countries got a tremendous amount of support to become functioning democracies and also to become um, prosperous societies again. And I think the results we can see um, have been much better for the world. Now you, you have you have written. I just wanted to, if you give me a second, Senator, just to delve into a little bit more on the Treaty of Versailles, because you've also talked extensively about how the Treaty of Versailles sort of divided up the world into multiple countries that had never existed before, and you know, and the Middle East was divided up into various places. How did that treaty affect other conflicts beyond just the European conflicts that led to the Second World War? But how did that treaty affect other conflicts around the world? Well, potential conflicts around the world. Yeah, uh, the treaty itself was really just with Germany. So it dealt with Germany and its borders in Europe and German colonies. So it certainly had a worldwide impact. But at the time, other treaties were being signed with the other central powers, the, the defeated powers. And so the one that really affected the Middle East was the Treaty of Sevres that was signed with the Ottoman Empire. And then that had to be replaced um, by the Treaty of Lausanne because the Ottoman Empire had disappeared. So a new treaty had to be signed. What I think they were trying to deal with um, at the Paris Peace Conference when they were dealing with all these issues was to try and set up borders because they really were dealing with, with a chaotic situation. Um, you know, it's often said that the people who met in Paris, the, the winning side who met in Paris, created all these countries in the center of Europe. Actually, those countries were creating themselves on the ground. Uh, national self-determination had become an enormously powerful force. And so Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, were effectively existing on the ground before the Allies actually approved their borders. Poland re-emerged, I think, really as a result of the collapse of the big empires in the center of Europe and the efforts of the Poles themselves. And so the capacity of those who were making peace in Paris was, was I think, very limited by the fact of what was already happening on the ground. But I think what happened in 1919 and subsequent arrangements helped to create or, or didn't remove the causes of future conflict. And I think particularly if you look at the Middle East, where new countries were created, and yet the powers, particularly in particular Britain and France, continue to try and manipulate those new countries and continue to try and manipulate um, what was happening in the Middle East, stored up an awful lot of trouble. And I think in some cases we're still seeing that trouble today. Um, you know, there is still great resentment in the Arab world about what happened and about the ways in which governments were put in, not by their own people, but by, by the British and the French. 
and still a lot of resentment about the borders which were drawn. Um, but the trouble with borders, as we know, is once you start to try and change them, um, you can open the door to all sorts of um, conflict. So going back to the Canadian experience, when Canadian men went to war, their wives stayed at home, they, you know, they, they worked in factories, they took the places of men in many jobs and that led, uh, and you've talked about it and written about it, to the emancipation of women. Uh, can you expand that idea a little bit more, you know, outside the borders of Canada? Where else, I mean, how has war uh, uh, propelled women to greater gender, gender equity? Well, what wars can often do, particularly big wars that affect societies in big ways, is they can speed up or push ahead things that might have happened anyway. And we'll never know because you never know what was going to happen. You just have to deal with what happened. But there was a movement before the First World War for women to have greater rights, particularly voting rights, to be able to play a greater role in the politics of their own societies. But I think also pressure for women to go to university and study the sorts of things that women weren't meant to study, pressure for women coming from women to take on the sorts of jobs that women weren't supposed to be able to be capable of doing or shouldn't want to do. So there was a sort of feeling among a lot of women, and they had male supporters as well, that the time had come to give women in a number of countries greater rights in societies. And this was a worldwide um, you know, it, it was it was a worldwide movement in a number of countries around the world, including in Asia. I mean, it wasn't just something that was confined to, to Europe or to North America. What the war did, the First World War did, and the Second World War was going to do in, in a similar sort of way, is it made the labor and contribution of women tremendously important because both these wars were fought with enormous numbers, mostly of men. And so men who'd been working in factories, offices, administrative jobs, whatever, went off to war and someone had to do those jobs and women did them. And this had the effect, I think, both of giving women more independence. I mean, a lot of women said it was great. For the first time in my life, I earned my own money and I didn't have to get it from my father or my husband. And it gave me a sense of independence. And I think that was a very important sort of psychological step. And what was also important, I think, is that women showed that in fact they could do the sorts of jobs men were doing. And so the, all the old arguments that you know, women can't do these jobs, they're not capable of them or no point giving them the vote because they won't know what to do with it. And that just fell out the window. And so in a number of countries, governments moved to give women the vote, um, moved a bit to give them more access to certain kinds of jobs and professions. And it wasn't all one way. When the wars ended and the men came back, a lot of women were encouraged to go back into the household, back into the home. But I think there had been a real shift and there was a real shift also in the position of the working classes because they had been enormously important in the world, in the war, sorry, they had been enormously important in the war. And there was a recognition again in countries like Britain and Canada that you had to treat those who were working in the factories or on the farms, you had to treat them better, you had to give them more social benefits, you had to give them more security, you had to pay them more. And so I think we saw as a result of those two world wars, uh, real social changes, which might have taken a lot longer to come without the wars. Now, that's not to say the war was a good thing. It, war is never a good thing, but it can bring in some cases positive effects. Now, you, you've said that, you know, war is essentially organized violence. Uh, there's lots of push and pull factors. There's lots of reasons why, you know, people go to war. And I, I just wanted to get your sense about, 
you know, sort of one of the more glaring and relative recent examples that we had, not of war itself, but of conflict. And that's, you know, the the sort of storming of the Capitol Hill, uh, you know, in the United States only about three weeks ago. And and does does the idea of uh, war as an organized violence or conflict as organized violence fit that description? Or do you see that as simply more of a mob gone wild? Um, and I'd also add like another sort of part to this is that is that what is the role of leaders in breeding conflict as well? What what do what role do they play to breed certain conflicts or or civil strife? And you know, is there anything that we can think about you know in the history of the U.S. that sort of plays into those areas? Yeah. Well, you've asked three at least three very good questions. Um, let me just go back to the history of the United States. I mean, the United States has a history of organized armed violence where people get together to use violence to achieve their ends. I mean, the War of Revolution mm-hmm. was organized. I mean, there were militia um, actually left over from, from earlier wars with the French, but they, they already had organized forces, which some of which became, of course, involved in, became involved in the War of Independence. And then, of course, they had the Civil War, where you got two halves of the country organizing themselves for violence and, and fighting each other. And you've had, I think, Throughout running throughout American history, um, a tendency, perhaps put it no, no more strongly than that, for Americans to organize themselves in militias, not necessarily organized by their governments, but organize themselves in self-defense force or frontier forces or whatever. And we've been seeing a reappearance of that, I think, recently. I mean, certainly there in the 50s when you when you got people like the Minutemen, for example. And what has been concerning me for some time long before the the violence at the Capitol buildings, is the appearance of people who wear what look like military uniforms, and there's a lot of military surplus around, so they dress up in camouflage, whatever, carrying military-grade weapons and marching in their equivalent of formations. I mean, they're not always very good at marching, but nevertheless, there is this sort of organized thing. Now, as far as the Capitol storming goes, I'm not sure we know yet just how organized it was. I mean, I was reading something in maybe the New York Times or the Washington Post somewhere today, which said the authorities are beginning to get a better idea of how much organization there was. And they're beginning to look at some of those chat rooms, um, rather obscure chat rooms, um, which are sometimes difficult to get into, where people on the far right um, tend to hang out. And, And no doubt they exist on the far left as well. And it does look like there were certainly some people who were premeditating and planning on violence, um, you know, urging their followers to come, saying, we're going to do this, bring this, bring the, bring these sorts of things with you. But a lot of it looked to me, certainly when I saw it first on television, like mob violence, which means disorganized. Um, but we don't know. And this is something I think that is worrying for societies. And there are a number of other things that can happen. You mentioned the role of leaders. You know, societies can be strong, or weak, we know that. But when you get societies which have vulnerabilities and you get societies in which there are divisions, leaders can play often a very pernicious role indeed. Um, You will get populist leaders, you'll get demagogues who will play on those differences, play on the fears of people, and the rhetoric will get stronger and stronger. And I think we've been seeing this in the United States and we've certainly seen it in other places. I mean, you know, sadly we, we saw it in Rwanda and Burundi before the troubles there, you know, that you you get those who will use these things to try and foment violence, no doubt for their own ends. And the same thing happened in Yugoslavia, where you got leaders appearing in the 1990s 
who attacked the whole notion of Yugoslavia, um, who attacked those who weren't like them, and played a very dangerous role and very destructive role. And they can help to increase divisions, they can help to increase fears, to the point at which people who had lived together, often pretty amicably, will turn on each other. And so, yes, I think leaders can play a very important role in this. Margaret, you talked earlier about why people go to war. Sometimes they go to war to defend themselves for they have ambitions on on their influence, etc. But they also go to war to defend their ideologies um, and religion. Let me put that uh, in that bucket. You know, when I look at the lasting conflicts of yesterday and today, the wars between Muslims and Christians, Christians and Jews, Sunnis and Shias, Hindus and Muslims, uh, they still continue to play out in different parts of the world in different ways. Um, and so people are want to say, many people are want to say, religion is one of the root causes of war. Well, I broaden it, I, I agree with you, it can be, and I, but I broaden it to say ideologies of all sorts. Mm -hmm. And so nationalism, which in a way is a mobilizing ideology, I would I would argue can be a cause of war. If you think our people, however you define them, whether you do it by race like the Nazis did or whether you do it by religion or language or whatever, our people are better than those people. And those people are somehow subhuman or less human than us. You know, that can also be a cause of war. And so there are the secular ideologies, the things about let's change the world here on earth. And then, of course, there are the religious ones and they're enormously powerful. I mean, they can mobilize people to kill their neighbors, but also to die themselves. You know, people will die for a cause. I think often what you get in war, I mean, you also we also have to factor in I mean, there's fear, self-defense, there's ideology, but I think you also have to factor in greed. I mean, organized groups of people go to war to get something they want. You know, they see a nice piece of land, as Putin did in Crimea or they see some slaves they could capture and, and take away and sell, or they see, you know, or they believe there are piles of riches that they might want. You know, there are all sorts of reasons. And often they overlap. I mean, you know, the Crusaders went off to the Middle East talking about religion, but they did an awful lot of looting along the way and did rather well for themselves. So I think often motives will, will be mixed and people often use high sounding ideologies to actually feather their own nests or look after themselves. But yeah, I think all these are very powerful. And, and of course, what surprises me, and I'm sure you, is that religion, which at the beginning of the 1990s, we would have said, no, religious wars are something that happened in the distant past. We will never not have religious wars in the 20th and 21st centuries. Who knew? And religion has turned out to be one of the powerful motivating forces. I, I wanted to follow up on that, on, on sort of what, what sort of motivates regular people, if I want to say that, because you have said that, you know, war isn't necessarily a part of human nature, but it's a cultural sort of a phenomenon as well. And and I remember reading, you know, uh, about reserve police battalions in Germany that, you know, sort of went to and, and, and committed atrocities. But when they looked at the reasons why they did it, it wasn't always about ideology or any sort of fanaticism, Nazi fanaticism. It was a lot of group dynamics that you're off into uh you know a country that you're uh you know going into you're with your fellow people you have to do what the others are doing to be a part of the group and and how does that sort of dynamic play into 
you know, people committing atrocities during war, but that also doesn't mean that we as societies can evolve maybe afterwards if it is more of a cultural group dynamics that, you know, post-war we can evolve out of those, those particular issues. Well, I'd, I'd like to hope that, that you're right, Paul, and I think you are. I mean, I think there is an argument, you know, that those who say that we're biologically programmed to fight, um, and then those who say it's more cultural. And I come down firmly on the cultural side because, in fact, we're also programmed to save our own lives. Mm. Yet we will risk our lives in war. And so why is that? Um, you know, it seems to me the only thing that can explain it is that we have been persuaded or we've been brought up or acculturated to think that risking our lives for a particular cause is, is a good thing. And I make a real distinction, too, between sort of the random violence. You know, someone gets into a fight outside a bar. That, that's one on one. Um, more war is organized you know it's organized violence and it's groups of people often highly organized who are persuaded to apply that violence or, or to defend themselves i think culture is enormously important and i think what you pointed to why do people fight what keeps them fighting in the battlefields you know quite frankly wars may start for ideology but what motivates a lot of those people who are actually out there fighting is not the ideology it's their, it's their comrades and there have been so many studies on that and, and so many of the war memoirs talk about that. And I think the cases you mentioned with Germany and there's that book by Christopher Browning, Ordinary Germans, mm. I, which you, you probably read. And, you know, these were nice family men, small town, I think, in, in, in the west of Germany. And they went off and, and committed appalling atrocities. And they didn't, you know, I think the German army was dreadful in many ways, but you didn't have to take part in the murder of citizens, whether they were Jews or Poles or whatever, there's an awful lot of, you know, as we know, um, murder and, and extermination um, carried out by the Germans, but you didn't have to take part in it. You, didn't, you wouldn't suffer any penalty if you refused to do it, yet very few of them refused. And so what, and I think you, you've, you know, you've put your finger on something, it's the group. And we see this, don't we? We see it operating with sort of groups in gangs or, or groups of teenagers who, don't necessarily approve of what's happening, but they want to go along with the group. You know, the fear of being out of the group and losing your friends can, can be quite strong. Um, but, you know, also I think, um, and people have said this, if you're in a war, you will have people prepared to die for you, which is quite something. I mean, this doesn't happen much in, in civilian life. And you feel, I think, a corresponding pressure to do something for them, to, to, to help them survive. Mm -hmm. And this this is really, you know, all the studies I've seen, or most of them, suggest that what really keeps soldiers fighting and keeps people in naval vessels you know, at sea working together is this sense of, of owing something to the group, being part of the group, um, wanting to preserve the group. Yeah, that, that is definitely part of human nature. Um, I want to uh, talk about historical figures. You bring them alive. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I remember reading the women of the Raj with obvious great interest mm. and history's people. There are so many fascinating portraits of people of all the people you've written about and studied. Who do you think who fascinates you the most and why? Well, it depends what I'm thinking about at the moment. <laughs> at the moment, um, I'm working on a book on the Second World War and I'm in the middle of a, an enormous biography of Stalin, who is not a pleasant person, not a happy subject, um, but he is fascinating. And so I think it depends on, on what I'm interested in at a particular time. But I suppose what fascinates me are, are the people who stand out in history, perhaps because they're very good at um, 
doing things, you know, who are they, what do they do? Or the people who are bystanders or participants in history, you know, who are they, what are they? I mean, I, th I think there's not one particular type of person I'm interested in the past. I'm interested in those who write the wonderful diaries and records that we all rely on. I'm interested in what was it like, you know, if you were an ordinary person, if you were like, say, my, my Scottish Canadian ancestors, you came across by boat from Scotland, what it was, what was it like to, you know, go to southwestern Ontario and, and clear a bit of land? You know, there, there's so many fascinating stories in the past, and it doesn't have to be important people. Um, it can often be people who, you know, got on with life, and, and what were they, they're harder to find out about sometimes. What were their lives like? It's an interesting, dis sorry, ahead, it's an interesting discussion, though, about, and I'd be interested to get your opinion on this, is, you know, Certain figures in history, and we can use a, an example of Sir John A. Macdonald in Canada, right? Uh, you know, the founding father, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, but his reputation has changed over the years. And, and I'm curious as a historian, how do you deal with uh, controversial and also complicated figures that may have, um, you know, done good things, but then also have done bad things? And, and you know, for example, will Sir John A you know, go down as the founding father of the nation, or will he be, uh, you know, a bigot and a racist in, in generations to come? How do you deal with these very controversial and complicated figures in history? Well, I'm always a bit uneasy, um, although we all make judgments, of course, but I'm a bit uneasy when we use the standards of one time to look at the peoples of another time. Um, you know, I think we should have a little bit of humility here. We believe and do things which 50 years from now people will think are really reprehensible. And so I think we should just remember, and you know, there's certain things we we can understand persist through history are wrong. Taking the life of another person and for no good reason is a very bad thing to do. Cruelty is bad. But I think we have to be careful when we get into fashion. Um, you know, what we feel at the moment is something desirable may not be something that people in the past felt was and may not be something that people in the future think. But you used the word complicated about Sir John A. Macdonald, and I think that's something we need to remember. You know, the past, like the present, is not people with people who are either extremely good or extremely bad. You know, human society, human beings are mostly, with a very few exceptions, a mix. You know, we can say that there are saints and there are sinners, but those are at extremes of terrible sinners, the people like Stalin or the people like Hitler. But in between, there are people who are very mixed. And Sir John A. Macdonald was someone who did some very good things. I mean, I happened to think the creation of Canada was on the whole a good thing. And the way in which he brought together the French and the English was good. He did not have a good record when it came to dealing with the indigenous, but most people in the dominant societies in Canada did not have a good record on that. I think it's better that there be a Canada than that parts of this country had been absorbed into the United States. I don't like to think what that might have been like, but I, I'm not sure it would have been a happy solution for a lot of people. So I think the creation of Canada is a good thing, and I think we have to recognize that it might not have happened without him. But that doesn't mean we have to think that he was a cardboard figure who never did anything wrong. I mean, I would rather try and discuss complexity and rather try and understand these people than simply say, we've got to take their statues down, we mustn't talk about them, we must you know, put cast them into the outer darkness. I don't think that really helps us understand who we are and where we came from. And I don't think it really helps us understand what it is to be human. You know, we are mostly a mess um, of contradictions. And I think we need to remember that. 
That's such a wonderful line to end with. We are mostly a mess. <laughs> People are complex. Histories are complex. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor McMillan, for talking to us today. I could and Paul could talk to you forever, but our producers are telling us our time is done. Um, we will be on air with this shortly. You've less, left us with lots to think about. And to our listeners, be sure to check out our other episodes and subscribe to the podcast and write to me if you have an idea about someone you'd like to hear from, because I can at least follow up on that. We were able to secure uh, uh, Professor Margaret McMillan, uh, and perhaps that this opening opens up other guests to us as well. We will continue to move the needle as we examine some of the really wicked issues confronting us today and tomorrow. Thank you so much, Professor McMillan. Well, it's been a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank you very much.